0: Hello listeners, this is Emily. I just needed to preface this episode by saying that I've come to realize I got a couple of things wrong after recording. So when I'm discussing the concept of wave washing, something we'll get into more later. This actually occurs in Antarctica, not the Arctic. Also that the killer whale known as Old Tom frequents the Bay of Fundy, not the Minas Basin. My apologies for the mistakes, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello Slayers and Players, and welcome to episode 2 of Write Up Your Algae your local wildlife biology and environmental science podcast. My name is Emily. And I'm Clara. And if you're new here, I'm a third year biology student at Acadia University with a focus on marine ecology. And I'm currently working in a soil lab with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada.
1: And I'm currently working on my fourth year in environmental science at Acadia. And I'm working on my honors in the soil department at Agriculture
0: and Agri-Food Canada as well. This will be my first go at hosting an episode, and today's theme is very near and dear to me because the species I will be talking about is what drew me to this field. So when I was very young, I saw Believe, which was the current Shamu show going on at SeaWorld Orlando, Mm -hmm. and it was, I think, the first time I genuinely ever felt, like, the emotion inspiration. Like, it it was a very moving moment for me. And um, as a small child, I sort of just kind of made it my whole personality that Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a whale trainer. And that sort of evolved over time into, like, animal husbandry, like being a zookeeper, and then eventually sort of transitioned into my current goal of marine ecology. And um, I think that's sort of one of the main arguments, I think, pro-animal captivity, if that makes sense, is it brings attention, it educates, it brings inspiration for people to care about these animals. And of course, the conservation that they can fund with just the huge amount of money that organizations like SeaWorld can make. But we're going to go back to the captivity of orcas in a bit. So I have seen wild orcas once in my life, and I will never forget this moment.
1: Oh my gosh, that's so
0: magical. Oh, I know. <laughs> I would probably consider it my favorite animal encounter ever. I used to spend some time every summer with my grandparents on their houseboat, and one summer we encountered like a migrating group of orcas who followed the boat for a while, and my grandmother and I sat on the bow, and we watched them swim in, in the wake and next to the boat, and... Um, I remember going over to the rail and, like, looking over the rail just as, like, one had surfaced, like, meters from me. Like, like very, very oh close. And I, like, remember its, like, blowhole, like, opening and closing. I, I just, it was a very moving moment for me. And um, I think, like, right after my grandpa like, grabbed me and hauled me <laughs> yeah, away from yeah. the rail. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> because I was probably, like, hanging right on over or something. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to get a look at the whales. But anyways. For me personally, what I think makes large mammals such as whales so fascinating is they're, first of all, so intelligent, but they have really strong social groups. Mm-hmm. And in my reading of this, I've seen that there's been some arguments from, you know, anthropological scientists, you know, working with biologists that orcas have like a culture, you know, the, this idea of having a culture. And that's going to be the focus of today's episode. And I've, I've just found it very interesting. I've, I've learned so much and I thought I, you know, already knew a decent fit because I, I just love whales. Scientific name, Orcinus orca, have strong social bonds, and their pods or groups can range from 2 to 15 individuals, but temporarily they may travel in groups of up to hundreds for mating purposes or in areas of high prey availability. Each pod has a specific vocal repertoire that they each use, and toothed cetaceans, cetaceans being the clade holding whales, dolphins, and porpoises, have a structure called a melon, which is not quite understood yet, but... Uh, this is thought to enhance their echolocative and communication abilities. So that's that kind of just meaty, like, gushy oh, section yeah. on, like, belugas. <laughs> belugas, it's really pronounced, yeah. but, but it's on all, like, toothed tooth cetaceans. Oh, cool. I didn't know that that's,
1: that was, It's like, called a melon. melon. <laughs> a melon. That's a perfect
0: word for it. A melon. <laughs> pods follow a matriarchal system, and a head matriarch is integral to pod success. Matriarchs act as teachers to the pod's young. And it has been found that if the matriarch passes, it can cause the pod to dissipate and join other pods or to go off into smaller groups on their own. This idea of having this distinct dialect, top behaviors from matriarchal orcas, have kind of culminated in this idea that orcas have distinct cultures between their pods. Orcas are widely considered to be self-aware, which is something I thought was a bit interesting, and I didn't really know what it meant to be self-aware. There's kind of a couple tests you can do, uh, but there's something called the mirror self-recognition test, uh, where upon encountering their reflection, they're aware that it is themselves and is not another another orca. Like, I don't know if you've seen videos of people putting <laughs> mirrors in the woods and then bears seeing them and just freaking yeah. shit on the <laughs> mirrors. <laughs> it's quite funny. I like that's so cruel. <laughs> but, I mean,
1: it's just a mirror. I mean, I,
0: I don't know. I suppose they could hurt themselves. But it's it's showing that they, you know, something like a bear, even though, you know, a very another you know quite intelligent animal also quite social animal you know they they don't necessarily view mirrors as themselves but orcas do there are three ecotypes of orcas call them stocks
1: because i know with lupin tuna you have the like uh more western stock like the north american stock and then the mediterranean
0: stock location does play a factor but a big part of it is behavior so i'm not sure if I haven't used I haven't heard of the term stock very okay. often. Um, so there are three types of orcas. Some sources say say two, uh, those being resident orcas and transient orcas. With offshore orcas being the third. So resident killer whales travel in long-term stable groups with several matriarchal lineages. They stay near coastlines and they feed mainly on fish. Transient killer whales are often smaller groups. Often it's just a mother and her young. Uh, They travel further from shore, hunting marine mammals such as seals and large invertebrates. The offshore orca type is considered to be a group of orcas in the Pacific Ocean that is generally smaller than other orcas with rounder dorsal fins and, interestingly enough, have been observed in recent years preying on sharks more frequently in B.C. And this has had, like, adverse dental effects on their, like, dental health and stuff. I don't know, it's interesting. It's kind of like a a new behavior for them, it seems.
1: Interesting, because... You know, you think of killer whales, obviously they're a top apex predator, Mm -hmm. like nothing can get after them, but it's so fascinating that they're killing sharks. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought that, but I guess it kind of makes sense since they are like the apex predator. They
0: really are. And we're going to get into some of their hunting tactics, but they, they've been observed feeding on like everything. Like I accidentally, I I wasn't even looking for it. I came across an article about it off the coast of Newfoundland. They were like hunting humpback whales and stuff like that. Like that's crazy yeah, saw, <laughs> they're huge i saw
1: a video on instagram the other day of orca whales i think it was on like the nature is Metal no instagram page <laughs> and it was an orca whale trying to eat a baby right whale and i was like
0: oh my gosh i now that you mention it i, I didn't even put this in there but i thought it was really cool i did see a video not that long ago of what i want to say were two gray whales i could be wrong Uh, Were being preyed upon. I think it was like a mother and a young, because one was quite small. But Mm -hmm. that's just from looking at it. Um, Was being preyed upon by by a pod of orcas. Like there was a lot of orcas, Mm -hmm. and they were um, the gray whales. Where every time an orca would come to, I guess strike at them, they would flip onto their backs, so their bellies would be above the water, so it would kind of leave that more like hardened skin for them to, you know, hit. I know it's interesting because they're kind of. I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting because it kind of shows that they know how to deal with being preyed upon, which is, you know, not something you'd expect from, you know, such a big, big animal. Yeah. Anyways, orcas have very sophisticated feeding tactics with particular methods being observed by pods and passed through generations. Some of these methods include, and I'm just going to highlight a few that I found interesting, but there's there's so many yeah. and they're so distinct, which is which is so interesting. One of these is called carousel feeding, a fish hunting tactic in which a group encircles a school of fish while one orca will shoot upwards from beneath them, swallowing large quantities of prey. Another can be seen in Arctic orcas. And I feel like this is in like every nature documentary ever. You see this This hunting tactic. This is (laughs) the seal one. So this is observed in what is called type B, like Arctic orcas. And they're supposed to be like a specialist in seal hunting, okay? Uh, like very robust tactics. And this is called wave washing. It was first deemed by Smith et al. in 1981. To simply put it, the pod will locate a seal on pack ice, mm-hmm. and swim rapidly towards it, and making like a wave so big it'll break off chunks. Yeah. Then they will come back around, and they will just keep doing this, breaking off more and more pieces, either forcing the seal into the water. Or, you know, just flipping over this, this platform of ice, allowing it to be preyed upon. So I know. It's so cool that they can, like, figure this out and teach it to yeah. others and things like that.
1: This is, like, when we talk about technologies and and I guess it's more of, like, an anthropo- or, yeah, anthrop... Anthropology? That. Okay. <laughs> Anthropology. And we, like, talk about that and, you know, talk about how humans can evolve and. and mm-hmm. these technologies. And these tools and everything like that, but the strategies that animals have in hunting, like that takes a lot of you know figuring out, and especially when you're teaching it to your young and teaching it to a whole group and being so coordinated,
0: mm-hmm. that really shows.
1: Yeah, because there's, there's, there's
0: a, a coordination effect to it, it's yeah. not just a bunch of individuals all you know running after fish and mm-hmm. stuff, they, they collectively have strategies that they execute together. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Another very coordinated attack, which we're going to talk about, is seen in the orcas of Patagonia. So during pupping season for elephant seals and sea lions in Puta Morte, orcas frequent the coast and take advantage of this prey source. Two or more whales will corral pinnipeds, so that is seals and sea lions, underwater, and it, they will pin them against the shore. So it's unknown how successful this as-is is as a feeding mm. attempt, you know, ha- how often this is good enough. But, however, should the pinniped, or the sealer sea lion, go ashore to evade the orca whales, they have been observed propelling themselves onto shore, grabbing the pinnipeds, and then sort of rolling themselves back into the surf. Oh my gosh. I know. It is, like, crazy to see.
1: <laughs> is there videos
0: of that? Oh, tons. I mean, this is another one that is, like, in every nature documentary ever, okay. because it's just so wild to see an animal beach itself roll back in you know what though to be fair
1: whales were once on land right
0: <laughs> they're just going back so to their they're roots they're familiar with the territory and they know what to do
1: they've got to figure it
0: out <laughs> um they talked a bit about the success rates and how they differ from like adult to juvenile of it in in this one particular study i looked at all of our studies by the way are going to be in our episode description but it has been observed and what one that i just found super interesting was because you kind of imagine you know One going up, grabbing one, rolling back in. As if that wasn't cool enough. It has been observed that adults will beach themselves with a juvenile. The adult will grab the seal and then throw it to the juvenile (laughs) to grab. And then they'll roll back in. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. I know. They're playing catch.
1: (laughs) I mean, like, when you think about it, just like how cool that is, it's... It's just so fascinating that they've been able to to teach themselves how to do this. Like, whales are huge. I don't think just me seeing pictures, I can't conceptualize how big these animals actually are.
0: And for them to be able to
1: propel themselves up on land
0: and then roll back into the water. I mean they're just like uh tons of muscle. They're that's all they are. You know, they're yeah. they're crazy. But there's so many more cool hunting tactics seen all over the world. Just to put a couple, you know, rapid fire. In whales off the coast of Chakota, Russia, they hunt walruses by, like, smacking them with their tails. <laughs> and, like, just disabling them and then preying upon them. A walrus? A walrus. Walruses are huge, too.
1: <laughs> so, like, gotta have... give it to them. Walruses can defend themselves. They've got those huge ass tusks. I
0: didn't look into if they like particularly would go after like females or pups or anything, but just just smacking a walrus with
1: your tail. (laughs) Orcas
0: are so cool. (laughs) They are very cool. Some other interesting tactics can be seen in orcas off the coast of Lofoten, Norway, who use the topography to their advantage, kind of like the Patagonian orcas do, by corralling herring into like shallows and then just, you know, going after Mm -hmm. them. But it's so interesting that they can have so much knowledge of, of like, depth and how they can ta- use that to their advantage and yeah. stuff. It's, it's just very interesting. Unquestionably, killer whales are really incredible apex predators. There are many more hunting tactics that I have not mentioned. But I think these robust techniques that these organisms use and are taught and are practiced are really just a testament to the great intellect that orcas have and this idea of pots having their own culture. In the wake of films such as the Blackfish documentary, as well as the tragic death of SeaWorld employee Don Bradshaw in 2010, concerns for captive cetaceans, particularly orcas, have been brought to the world's attention, and Canada in 2019 banned the captivity and breeding of whales. And in March of this year, Kiska, known as the world's loneliest whale, the last Marineland orca, passed away after spending decades in captivity after being captured in Icelandic waters in 1979. She was actually captured along with a whale named Kiko, who was the star of the film Free Willy. This is, of course, very heartbreaking to think about, but it really does mark the end of an era of companies like SeaWorld and Marineland profiting off of the abuse of these animals that really are impossible to ethically keep in captivity.
1: I remember my first time watching Blackfish, I cried and cried and cried. It was just so tragic, like, on both ends,
0: you know, to see
1: the tragedy, obviously, the loss of human life, but also this whale... He's just just been through hell.
0: Um, so there's this actually there's a part in the Blackfish documentary which I will say is not a perfect documentary. They do kind of use the voices of former SeaWorld employees more than like marine biologists, but I mean it's it's still it did so much for for bringing attention to the to this horrible issue. Yeah. But they say something in this documentary where you can't take a bunch of whales from a bunch of different parts of the world put them in a tank together, and expect them to be a family because they have such distinct social qualities and behaviors. Yeah. Like, they've even, although they're the same species, there's even, like, like reproductive barriers between them. Like, they just can't, if that makes sense, because their yeah. behaviors are so different. Not to mention these animals are massive. They can be around three to four tons, and they are in criminally small tanks. So you can imagine the kind of conflicts that can occur in such a small space with such a huge animal who are not family, there are some really interesting maps of SeaWorld showing the tank space versus like the parking space. And I think it really shows how little space was actually allotted to hold these animals. Uh, we can add images like this onto our socials just to give, you know, a real visual image to how mm-hmm. how little space has been given to them. This, of course, is a very complicated issue, uh, as captive whales cannot simply be released into the wild. So Kiko, the whale who starred in Free Willy, which I mentioned earlier, was aggressively campaigned to be released by some very well-meaning but... Uninformed movie watchers. And she was. She did unfortunately pass away months later due to pneumonia. Whales really do need to be taught how to be whales. There's another fantastic podcast that uh, Clara recommended to me that I've got to recommend to you called The Salmon People, who in the first episode detail a mother orca who is unable to feed her young because she had not been taught by a matriarch whale how. To do so. This unfortunately led to the death of her young. However, I will say it's not all bad news. In Port Hilford Bay, Nova Scotia, currently in its third phase of environmental assessment, uh, there's been a retirement center, so to speak, for captive belugas and other porpoises where they can receive veterinary care, assistance, and obtain nutrition to live out the rest of their lives in a contained bay. This project has gone through a lot of delays. As you can imagine, there are a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration, especially with the past and history that we have of not really well-releasing captive whales. Overall, this is probably the best option for captive cetaceans in Canada to live out the rest of their lives in peace yeah. and to hopefully we will never take them into captivity again.
1: Yeah, And I just have a question about that. So when was that kind of established? Cause especially with the pandemic, instead I can imagine it be hard to get that up and running or if it was already running to keep it in service.
0: It is still not running. I was under the impression that it had started um, in fall of last year, which was when it was predicted to. but it has just kept meeting delays, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Yeah. You know, I I think a, a, a small mistake could lead to tragedy here, unfortunately. Yeah. So I think it's good that they're, you know, taking all the measures needed. There's been some open houses at their, um, at their head office, I suppose in the Bay for, for the public to learn about, you know what's going to be happening here. I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings on it. I hope I hope it works out. I, I don't know if it will. And my question is too is if some of these animals,
1: you know, the data and other animals in that bay, are they separating the bay into?
0: I'm not sure. I don't know if it's I I don't know if it's a system of nets or or what it would be. I'm really not sure. You know, at least they have space to get away from them if they need yeah. to. It's still enclosed, but it's mm-hmm. it's still a lot more room. A lot easier to avoid conflict. Yeah. Orcas are, of course, very visually stunning animals and have become one of the faces of conservation, like polar bears, pandas, elephants. And this, of course, is a bit of a mixed bag of whether this is a good thing or not. I, I there There are some great things about it because it gives... Something for the public to get behind, you know, people who aren't, people who are laymen about this. It also means that there are organisms that get a lot more funding than others, even though they may have greater environmental importance and are at an even higher risk. Like last episode, we discussed algae, which I would say, most people don't know all that much about algae. I took a course on algae and I don't know much about algae. <laughs> but it provides an immense amount of oxygen for our atmospheres. It's it's incredibly important. It far surpasses trees. But uh, trees are big, beautiful, and anyone can see one, knows yeah. what it is. So it allows movements like save the trees, plant more trees. You see these things all the time on t-shirts. They're everywhere. These things gain a lot more traction. Trees, of course, themselves are one of the biggest symbols of conservation there is. All of this is just to say that attaching symbolism to movements can sway the direction of the action that's taken when conservation as a goal really should be overall ecosystem health not necessarily individual organisms
1: yeah and i think these something that i've noticed at least myself um, most of the time it's mammals that we yeah are, definitely that we are giving symbols to and using them as this charismatic animal that mm-hmm. attracts people to learn more about the environment which It's not a terrible thing but again like you said it does have a lot of downfalls there's a lot of organisms that just get left behind Mm -hmm. and that we haven't even discovered we don't know everything that's out there and because we are so focused and honed in on these huge animals like huge that we can see visibly see we forget about everything else that goes on like all the beetles, for example.
0: There's so many beetles. <laughs> I think I saw something that said if you put one of every <laughs> different animal in the world in a bag, um, you'd pull out a beetle like one in every six times. <laughs> yeah, like there's so many beetles. But Nobody knows anything about beetles,
1: but we you know almost everything there is to know about a polar bear. Yes. Know? And not saying that that's a bad thing, because obviously polar bears are at risk, but mm-hmm. what about the rest of the ecosystem that mm-hmm. the polar bear relies on as well? And there is something to be said about the trophic cascade and, you know, the top-down approach, but it's, it's kind of interesting how we look up to one animal and use it as the poster child, mm-hmm. there is everything else that we need to be focusing on as well.
0: If you're an Acadia student, uh, Arctic Environments is a great course taught by Mark Mallory. He highlights this issue a lot in relation to polar bears as a symbol of Arctic conservation. Uh, But let's move on to our quiz section, or as we like to call it, believe it or not. I'm sorry. I love the
1: fact that
0: we're workshopping these names because mine was terrible. (laughs) And here's where we'll test each other's knowledge on the show's topic. Do feel free to play along at home. True or false? Orcas live longer in captivity than in the wild. False. That is correct. While this is true for many captive animals, uh, the Institute of Animal Welfare states that in the wild, roughly 75% of female killer whales will live to reach menopause, which occurs around 40. In captivity, female killer whales reach menopause around 7% of the
1: time. Also, the fact that whales have menopause, like, I feel like I should know that. I love that.
0: that. I love it. (laughs) Uh, How long is the gestational period of orcas? A, 9 to 12 months? B, 12 to 15 months? C, 15 to 18 months? Or D, 18 to 20 months?
1: Huh. I'm probably going to be wrong, but I'm
0: going to say 15 to 18. That is also correct. Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) This one's a little bit more difficult, but maybe it's not. We'll see. So what is the closest living evolutionary relative to cetaceans? So you've got... Harisodactyla, so that is tapirs, rhinos, you know, that, mm-hmm. the, 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 those are members of that, of that order. There is serenia, that's dugons and manatees. Uh, carnivora, wolves, foxes, domestic dogs. And Artiodactyla, which includes camo and hippopotamuses. I'm definitely
1: going to get this wrong. I'm
0: going to go with wolves. <laughs> no, it does not order carnivora. It is artiodactyl, so that actually the and of those the hippopotamus is the closest okay. closest relative. I was thinking, I don't
1: know, for some reason that orcas are related to cats. <laughs> I don't know
0: where I got. I was gonna put like felines in there as like a red herring or something.
1: <laughs> I didn't think you would have picked it. <laughs> Listen. Animal biology. I am <laughs> the most clueless. I think it's so so fascinating, but I don't know anything.
0: I'm glad. I'm glad because I'm going to know an awful little amount of what you're going to spew at me. Yeah. So.
1: In case you guys didn't realize from the first episode, um, and you probably wouldn't have, but I'm really fascinated by microbiology stuff and um, and other things that are are just kind of smaller than what you look at so when you look at the landscape you don't see the algae growing on the tree and and that's kind of like where my head's at <laughs> so I will try my best to diverge and talk about more things than just the smallest things on the planet that you can't see but I am going to spend quite a, a
0: few of my episodes talking about that. <laughs> see that's I guess there's a lot of overlap between biology and environmental science but I like big biology and I like ecosystem health yeah. and I like things like that and, and <laughs> Whereas Galera likes things you can see under the microscope. (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, I do really love soil. And soil
1: is key to all biomes, terrestrial biomes. I know there's debate on whether the oceans are biomes or not, but that's okay. I'm not here to discuss that. (laughs) But soils are the key to ecosystem health. But also, I would like to know more about what happens above the ground and those big animals. So I'm glad Emily will be talking
0: about that. So, and for our last question, Clara, do you think this episode went whale? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I did. I did. I think <laughs> this episode went whale. God, I
1: thought quote was so many good puns. Oh, my gosh.
0: <laughs> I'd like to dedicate this episode to old Tom. For those of you who don't know, the lone minus basin orca.
1: Are you serious? There's an orca in the minus basin. You didn't know about
0: him. No, I could have swear you did. Anyways, I was gonna talk a bit about him, but then I didn't. Okay. He's 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 a um he's a lone bull orca who uh, is one of the only like he's the only orca that frequents like the minus basin uh-huh. area. There's been a couple theories as to why he's alone. It's not entirely uncommon for this to happen, you know. If a pod dissipates for whatever reason, he, he like hangs out with, I think it's white at dolphins, like often feed with him and stuff. He's yeah. That's super neat. Yeah.
1: What'd you say his
0: name was? Tom? Oh, old Tom.
1: Old Tom. We're here for you. (laughs) And
0: we love you. (laughs) And as of this summer, still alive and well, he's been spotted a few times by some whale watching (laughs) groups. I hope to see you on my visit to Digby next week. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and we hope this episode was right, right up, up your up. algae.
1: Soleil. <laughs>